Hello and welcome to Reef Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're seeing our first Marvel film in a little while. Um, the last one we shared was Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which we liked. We didn't see Eternals together, and we didn't see uh, Spider-Man No Way Home together. We didn't podcast on either of those. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, what a pity. We should have <laughs> podcast on Spider-Man. Well, I mean, big waste of time, really. But that's where they started to get into the idea of the multiverse. And what do you mean, what... big waste of time? Our original in- no. insight. Well, and... the film was a big waste of time, really. I liked it, you see. But that's a good podcast already. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, this is Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, where the, the multiverse explodes. So we've gone from Iron Man in 2008 being a man versus another man wearing metal, to space, to magic, to other dimensions, other universes, mm. which are linked. Um, there will, will be spoilers coming up. Yeah, um, from the beginning. So the film really, really heavily depends, I think, on you knowing previous events in the Marvel series. It's as a standalone film it works far less than something like Shang-Chi did, I think, which oh, I suppose that's kind of an origin story too. It was introducing a character. Here, I think you you have to know WandaVision to an extent. You have to know previous events. Mm. No? Yeah, well, I don't know. Yeah. Right. Well, you haven't seen WandaVision, have you? I haven't seen WandaVision. Well, I saw the fr- I, f- I saw a, fr- a couple of episodes. I told you to finish it because I know, but I, f- I never watch a, a Marvel TV series, and I watched that one. Okay, well, I will watch it, but I've just not been able to bring myself to do it because I didn't like the first couple of episodes. Really, that's why it's a, every, it improves. Uh, Everyone right. said that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and and actually, the thing about knowing a lot about the Marvel universe, I mean, the Marvel universe I know is quite different from this one in the sense that, for example. You know, the Scarlet Witch was always the Scarlet Witch, mm. right? So, so somehow this development in quotation marks that, you know, there's now this other entity, this dark whatever that has taken over Wanda and made her into the Scarlet Witch. I mean, it, it's certainly not mm. uh, the Marvel Universe as I knew it in the comic books from before. So I think the plot is a bit difficult to follow. Yeah, and I'm not sure that that is due to whatever knowledge you have of, mm. you know, the Marvel Universe. I think it's a problem with the film, Yeah, really. I think so. Um, it's stuffed. It's yeah. heavily stuffed. It's doing too much. This thing about Wanda being, you know, a separate entity, a kind of, and Scarlet Witch being an alter ego, is provided here as an excuse for her, in a way. Because I think, so, I mean, we're really going to be in spoiler territory, mm. basically, from now. The moment very early on that it becomes clear that she's the villain of this piece, I thought, oh, she can't then survive this. Because basically what happened in WandaVision, and this is kind of spoiling WandaVision, but the film does talk about it too, is she, having lost Vision uh, to, to Thanos, having had to kill him, she takes over a town and mind controls this entire town and makes it her own reality so that she can have vision there, she can have kids, a family, she can have this perfect life mm. that obviously can't last. But it's like it's a super evil thing that she does to mind control real people mm. and turn them into her playthings, right? Mm. For her fantasy. And at the start of this, she's apologising for it, but immediately becomes clear that she's still at it. Mm. And she's still creating a... a, a, a a world that she wants to live in and she's still seeking one and now it's about seeking this girl who's able to travel through the multiverse which is a thing people can't do mm. so that she can find a universe in which these kids actually exist and she can have her perfect family and the moment that it became clear that she was the villain I thought oh, that she because this is so evil of her and she has been so evil and essentially unrepentant 
she 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 won't survive this. I thought it kind of felt like Elizabeth Olsen saying, "Like, let me out of this series." Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't <laughs> make know. me so evil that I have to be sacrificed. No, um, I mean there are things about it that that are so interesting, and I don't think that in a place that has multiple universes and multiple identities, and in fact, a one that survives with her children, I don't think that uh, that's a, a rationale for getting. Uh, for Elizabeth Olsen to get out of the series. Mm. In fact, I, think I have no idea whether she's. I think yeah. it's the opposite. I mean, I think this film provides her with her greatest screen role. You know, she is really, really good in it. She gets to play a double role. She gets to play a whole bunch of sides of 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 character. Mm. Uh, and I think she's one of the great strengths of the film. Though you know, I've never particularly been a fan of hers, but she is a, she's wonderful in this. Um, I think though that the film raises an interesting question. You know, because on the one hand, the film is full of unexpected female strength in a, a, a Marvel film. Yeah, the main villain, you know, the person who's the key to the multiverse and the love interest. Yeah, that's mm. quite a series. The love interest who is also like a scientific genius. Uh, plus, you know, Miss Marvel and Captain America now being a woman. And there's a whole bunch of things that, you know, I think the film has made a project out of, like, uh, uh, focusing on women. Mm. However, it raises to me the interesting dilemma of, you know, what happens... So on the one hand, you want women to occupy all kinds of roles in a film, but then how the film does it, I think, is so problematic, right? Because it does so through motherhood. Mm. So, you know, that line, I'm not a monster, I'm a mother, right? But actually, yeah, that whole drive to motherhood, what it signifies about... You know, I mean, uh, uh, our attribution of evil to particular types of motherhood. I mean, I found it both fascinating and I found it incredibly problematic. And I suspect that there's going to be a whole ream of, you know, academic yeah. journal articles written on this facet of the film. Psycho mom, tiger mom, who will kill anyone and end any universe she has to in order to be with her two kids. Who that are not she, hers. That she <laughs> invented. And yeah. these ones, yeah, from another universe as well, aren't hers. Yes. Uh, it's, yeah, it, it's... It's a nutty... I was thinking about that the whole way through, and I think, you know... And and then the resolution you ultimately get when she's confronted with them and confronted with what she's done and decides to end this, I felt was very unsatisfying as well. It didn't feel earned enough. No, it's a film that's odd, because, you know, I was just dazzled by some aspects of it. Like, all of the visuals. You know that bit where they go through all the multiverses and right some the of them are paint and then they're cartoons and then... Mm. I mean, I thought, wow, you know, it's just amazing, really. I think it is vis- visually an astonishing film. You could see how much work has gone into it, mm. you know. Uh, and also, it's full of storytelling, vir- virtuosic storytelling. You know, so for example, that signaling of the change from Wanda... Yeah, to the Scarlet Witch, just by the red ping in her eyes, mm. you know, and how quickly that's conveyed, and then how that becomes a trope throughout the film. I thought, you know, this is amazing, right? Mm. Um, Although you have had a scene just before that in which a person explains to you in words, this is what's going to happen in the next scene, basically. This person is going to take over this person's body. So you only need a flash in the eyes to show that's happening. Okay, well, you know, but a flash in the eyes is what you get, and then it's kind of pursued throughout. I thought that was amazing. Because mm. it so easily conveys such a complex thing, really. Yeah, but because you've had it explained to you immediately. Like, okay, well, I, f- I forget the explanation. <laughs> uh, Dreamwalking. Dreamwalking, it's Chiwetel Ejiofor's character who explains Dreamwalking when he drugs 
Not no, but dream. no, but the thing is that this happens before. Uh, no, it doesn't. Uh, Yes, it happens before Chiwetel Ejiofor even appears uh, on the screen. You know, that whole thing with, uh, you know, the mother and her children, and then kind of, you know, her eyes turning to red happens before they appear. Okay, I'd like to watch it again. I really don't think it does. I think it does. It's explained to you, then it happens. No, I think... Because part of what I was thinking as the film goes on is they can just do anything these days. Not only with the multiverse, but also with magic, which the film is all about. Strange and Wanda are all about magic. That you you could just... A lot of the film is just... Just more stuff. Because they can invent anything, they can do anything. And that's one of these things where I thought, okay, so they've invented this dream walking now, so we're going to see it pretty soon. But. Well, I mean, I think, you know, things like that were all kind of staples of comic books, like fantasy and magic and so on. So I don't think it takes a big leap to kind of go into the film's world around that. No, no, I don't mean in that sense. I don't mean like they've invented it for the film and that kind of thing. But I mean, like, the rules are now no longer, or precedent is now no longer, um, it's completely out the window. Because you, we really can just do whatever we fancy doing with a, with a wave well, of hand. And, and I think Sam Raimi is doing some really complex and interesting things. You know, so, uh, you know, the, the projection of the mind or, you know, mm. a, a conveying of thought or, you know, through this alt- alternate universe, like, you know, how worlds kind of, you know, get shaped differently through... Um, through Iconic images that remain. So, you know, uh, Stranger's House, right? Mm. Yeah, how all of a sudden kind of a whole different universe is conveyed through the way that it's drawn or imagined or, you know. I mean, I think there's a lot of, like, uh, really fascinating visual things. Mm. I think narratively, to me, the film doesn't hold together. And as an experience where you expect, I don't know, to be excited or to laugh or to feel, I think the film's a flop. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I mean, it didn't have a single laugh in it. Well, it had a couple. But yeah, yeah, it had like mild like, here and there. But it, chuckles. No, yeah. Well, not <laughs> you so Sam Raimi directing, um, and people were very excited about it because he previously, I think the last thing he'd done was maybe Oz, The Great and Powerful, which I never saw. I love that, yes. Right. Um, but he was well known for having done the Spider-Man series with mm. Tobey Maguire. And then before that, he was obviously known for Evil Dead and mm. he did Dragon to Hell, which was very and similar. And Oz was a big hit. That was uh, with, what's his name, who was now Persona? James, James Franco. Yeah, and yeah. Grata, um, <laughs> who was wonderful in it. And But I, was, I suppose I was kind of thinking, like, which Sam Raimi are we going to get? Is it going to be the superhero Sam Raimi, which you mm. would think it's a superhero film, or Evil Dead? And surprisingly, there's a lot of Evil Dead mm. in this. And, like, mm. it turns a point... In fact, quite a lot of the back end of the film is basically a horror, mm. a very Sam Raimi horror with shocks mm. and Wanda, the, or the Wanda that she uh, invades the mind of, Dream walks into, becomes like you know Carrie, mm. you know, drenched in blood and all of this, and, and stalking them around. And there are actual scares, you know. I mean, like quite schlocky sort of. Um, I don't jumpy remember scares. feeling. No, no, I don't remember feeling scared, but they are scares, like when mm. she kills. Stoiler, <laughs> Professor X, mm. you know, comes up behind him in the dream world, in, in her own mind, kills him. In the I thought that whole scene, you know, where in this alternate universe, you know, Captain America is now Agent Carter and, you know... Captain Britain. Yeah, I thought that was all so schlocky. <laughs> it's like, you know, how do we get all the Z stars of the Marvel Universe and find a place for them? <laughs> well, you, you definitely feel like... Because if you remember in No Way Home... 
we, we didn't see that together, but I guarantee in your screening, as there was in mine, there were whoops and cheers when the previous Spider-Mans emerged from that oh, portal. The, yeah. And they were expecting that in this. And I bet in America it got some. I, well, I don't, I don't know, because, none. I mean, it's one thing to have Andrew Garfield and, uh, what's his name, the other one, you know, because... Tobey Maguire. And Tobey Maguire, because people have great fondness and affection, and they're big stars, right? But, you know, to have... What's people love Patrick Mr. Stewart as Professor Professor X. People love Patrick Stewart, and his and his because because but, but do people love you know what's the Welsh actor who plays you know Mr. Fantastic and you know or the woman who plays Agent Carter or I mean, Hayley Atwell? Well, no, no, I, no one, I don't think anybody loves them particularly. No one likes Hayley Atwell for Hayley Atwell, but she's she's Peggy Carter, and I guess that kind of means something. Um, who's the who, uh, does John Krasinski play Reed Richards? He's not Welsh. Oh, yeah. Was it John Krasinski? Yeah, it was, yeah. Okay, I thought it was the Welsh actor who Reese. plays Reese something or other, yeah, who plays Mr. Fantastic in the Fantastic Four films. Oh, uh, right. Well, no, it was John, it was John Krasinski this time. Right. Um, but you're I definitely. I thought he looked different. <laughs> <laughs> you're definitely meant to um, have a moment when Professor X appears. Because if, cause if you weren't, he would just have been in that meeting at the start, for one mm. thing. <laughs> but they give him his own entrance to it, don't no, they? Yeah, they do. Um, and he didn't get one in our screening, at least. And our screening but, was but, but to be fair, busy. I think he's the only one who has any particular resonance. Mm. And part of this was Star Trek as well. And also, I also think that. I mean, it was, it was interesting that scene because. He is a meaningful character, and people care for him and love him. The Fantastic Four has—I I mean, I thought that was a, a joke, you know. Like Fantastic Four, no one's ever really—I mean, I guess those films made a bit of money. They made always, money, but they've always been a bit of a joke. The Fantastic Four. I know. It's, uh, you know, all the fans were saddened because, of course, the Fantastic Four was such a great yeah. comic book series. So I was going, how seriously am I meant to take the appearance of Reed Richards in this? Mm. Is that meant to be another... Is that a joke on... Just like we've got this silly little or maybe, superhero? Or maybe it's a cue that there will be a, a wonderful Fantastic oh, I, Four film. I now. mean, yeah, I imagine that's um, the big... You know. But yeah, um, that stuff was quite cheap. And, and the thing about um, uh, Peggy Carter being this Captain Britain or whatever, I didn't catch her name, but she's, she's Captain America but with a British flag and everything. Mm. It just made me think about, you know... American iconography, American flag iconography on stuff is, from a British perspective, it's like, that's just, it's kind of this cultural imperialist, like, that's just, it's on everything, and that's the way it is, and you accept Captain America because it's Captain America. And as soon as you see someone doing a Captain Britain, you go, oh, God, God. when the British flag, when the Union Jack is on stuff, it makes me so embarrassed. It looks Uh so tacky, you know? See, I don't feel that way. I mean, I always, um, of course, these things change. Yeah, you know, but for me, from my generation, I suppose it was always an image of coolness. You cool know, Britannia. Well, no, because I mean that's maybe for people your generation are a little bit older than you. Cool Britannia is nineteen nineties. Mm. I'm thinking of the sixties and seventies of Martin Rockers know, of the Ro- Rolling Stones. Yeah, yeah, kind of you know, uh, uh, and Carnaby Street and whatever. I mean, there was a vogue for the Union Jack uh, and Union Jack colors, and mm. you know, and so on. Uh, which actually is odd because I should be thinking about it in the same way that I think about American flags, which sicken me, <laughs> you know, all the flag waving, you know. But for some reason, I, you know, that 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 patriotism, which is what it is, uh, um, didn't communicate itself to me in that way. So I've always had a fondness for it, you know, like James Bond, yeah, mm. opens the parachute and it's a Union Jack or whatever. I always thought it yeah. was just cute and fun and playful, you know. I suppose maybe because it's ironic and witty and it's not like 
really saying we are the greatest nation on on earth and we have these great values and the flag waves in the sunset or something, which is what you often see in American films. <laughs> yeah, yeah. James Bond always had a, a winking irony to him um, that softens the imperialist blow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I got conned better by Bond yeah. <laughs> than, than, than by Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. Um... I found, I suppose, I found the film fairly joyless. Really, I get entirely what you mean about the about the kind of the visual dazzle to it, and and I loved, I, I loved how, you know. So I've mentioned, you know, kind of um, that Sam Raimi is in Evil Dead mode to some degree here, and that's really, really exciting. And there's there's wide angle use of camera with close up, and the camera's moving around, it's handheld at points, quite kind of kind of viciously, which again is like. It's invigorating, very exciting to see, and it's used really well. Um, the the prosthetics, you know, the idea of Doctor Strange inhabiting and puppeteering his own corpse is fun, and then and the way it's it acted is, you know, with with prosthetics. But like, I mean, compare it to, um, uh, oh, what was the Doctor Jekyll film, <laughs> the Venom film? Oh, um... Morbius. Yes. Compare it to Morbius, which is essentially, and, and in fact, the dead, the corpse of Doctor Strange here doesn't look a million miles away from, what's his name in that? Um, <laughs> I can't remember anyone's fucking name. The Doctor Who actor. Uh, um, I can't, can't remember. But he looks a bit like him. Um, but there, you know, we were talking about the, the preponderance of CGI and how heavily it was used and that it kind of got in the way of the performances. Now here... It's cartoony, and there's never going to be a great performance given underneath all of that prosthetic. But it's not meant to be. It's a it's a very small thing. But it's so textured, and, you know. I mean, but it's cheap. It's fun. It's it looks like that 1980s, you know. Plastic. Also, it's like zombie strange, yeah. isn't it? You know, and uh, it has that look. And actually, one of the wonderful things about the film is how each scene has its look. Yeah, you know, um, there's a lot of charm to the way those things are used. Mm. Um, and they don't, they don't kind of get in the way. They, they, they kind of merge quite nicely with, with what is what we come to expect from Marvel in beautiful, very, very detailed CGI. Mm. Um, that is a, at times quite expressive. I like, I love the idea of the portal being a star shape every time. It says something about that character. Mm. You know, she's a, she's a young girl, and so even though she's the only one in her in, in the entire multiverse who's like her, and she's lost her parents. And she's scared and all of this. She's still a young girl who has a sparkly star to travel places. And she's she's a young girl called America Chavez. Yeah. Which is very significant. I mean, I don't know if the screenwriters were drawing on Chavez, the you know, the famous California union organizer. Right? But Chavez is a Mexican name mm. that has a particular resonance in America. So to call this this you know, this powerful child yeah, who is called America Chavez mm. feels important, and and the first name America leads to all sorts of lines like "Is America okay?" Mm. You know, America doesn't have long left. <laughs> <laughs> you <know>. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I thought the film failed ultimately, though. You know, it wasn't. It was a bit. I looked at my watch once. So it was. It felt longer than the two hours, right? So w- without being quite dull, mm. yeah. But I think ultimately, you know, it it fails and it fails to. I think for two reasons, because the film has these two plot lines that, well, three, but 
we, you know, we've talked about one, the whole motherhood thing with the villainous. The other is, at the beginning, Strange decides to sacrifice America for the good of the universe. See, yeah. we're doing it now. Sacrifice America. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we, so we, we initially we meet a different Strange at the start, who's already got this yes. girl. And the film sees that as a horrible moral transgression. Mm. And I think that fails because, you know, I'm thinking, why is it a moral transgression? You know, if, the, if you sacrifice one life to save, you know, a hundred billion others, what's, what's wrong with that? Like, you know. Now you're thinking like Thanos. <laughs> <laughs> why? I mean, to me, it feels completely logical. You know, and that is why kind of, you know, soldiers are often called to sacrifice themselves, you know, often to save another life, not even, you know, Mm. billions. So I just don't see that as a powerful magnet that uh, strange changes, really. Well, I think I think it partly is because it's not given to her as a choice to do that. Strange takes it upon. I get it. And that was clever uh, of the screeners to do it. But it still doesn't feel like mm. some, you know, something that like people would be aghast at. I wouldn't be aghast at it. So, you know. well, to be fair, at the start of the film as well, we we don't really know the stakes. We're, we're basically told it's, it's going to be some sort of saving. I don't think we're even told it's going to be saving the universe thing. They're just being taken by this. Well, demon. he says it as he's killing her. I'm sorry it's for the good of the universe. Yeah, but we don't, <laughs> we, don't have, we don't have much context really, do we? Well, um, you have the and, it, and, and we are still being faced with a man, supposedly our hero, who we don't know at that point is a different strange. Um, but even if he is a different strange, even if we knew that, he's still our hero, killing a young girl. I mean, mm. we don't really know why. Mm. Um, and by the time we get to the end of the film, we're also confronted with the idea that there is, there was a different solution all along. Yeah. yeah. To make that the big moral development of the film, the big change, is to me a problem. I mean, I, the problem I had with Strange as a character was, was if you think about kind of development for him, the whole thing we're given, and it comes through the relationship with the Rachel McAdams character that was my as other, well. That was going to be my other point. Oh, right. Well, what I was going to say is that the thing we're given about him is like he, he always at some point does the wrong thing, mm. you know, does something selfish. And then we essentially get to a point where it's like he doesn't do that for once and we're supposed to cheer. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, so he wasn't a dick once in his life. Yeah, and also the whole thing uh, revolves around his avowal of love, right? Because, you know, he, he, Strange and whatever the Rachel McAdams character is called, you know, they're always, like, in each other's lives. They're always in love. They could never make their relationship work, mm. right? And part of the reason is obviously that Strange never commits, right? And, you know, the big thing at the end is, like, I love you and blah, blah, blah. And you you think well that's not enough of a payoff really you know <laughs> I kind of I felt like you know that's something the audience already knew right so how can that be a payoff unless it's just the fact that he's saying it I suppose yeah, yeah. but that to me is not yeah. you know it's not it's not enough for the film so the revelation of love uh, the motherhood issue and then the change in moral stance you know those are the three main themes that go throughout the film. And they're all weak. The motherhood thing's especially weak because I think those kids are annoying little cunts. <laughs> <laughs> Why you would want to destroy the universe to get to, to them? To get to them. Oh. <laughs> 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 be glad um, to be rid of them. But I must say, on the other hand, I really did feel dazzled. You really think yeah. this is like a great visual filmmaker 
at work and he's doing fascinating things and really avant-garde things like you know the way that the images you know unfurl and unfold and the way that they become subjective or objective and the way that reality falls apart and reconstructs itself. I mean, those are all amazing. It's things. nice that there's been a new way to kind of visually conceive of Doctor Strange, I think, because initially the first one was, was so dazzling. Mm. And it was imagery that was kind of, there was a lot of Inception type stuff. In yes. it, you know, the city folding yes. in itself, and that's happening a lot there. And also there's a, there's an animator um, online called uh, Syriac, mm. who does things with kind of repeated imagery that that was doing a lot as mm. well. Um, not saying like they're copying him, but it's, it was very reminiscent, you know. And it looked fantastic. And then you thought, what are they going to do next? How can they top it? Mm. You know. And um, so there's actually a lot less of that this time. Um, but they go into these, you know, they go into this different territory, mm. and they do, you know, they do this just that minute long ish montage where you first flying through those those universes is is really good fun. Yes. And that's what it. And it is just it's it's a flight of fancy. And when the film indulges in those, it's it is really good. Mm. But there's a, a lot of the film is just one thing after another, though, and, and it feels a lot of the film I felt was low on stakes. I think partly because we're meeting new characters or versions of characters that we have no investment in. One of the things that I had a problem with at the end of Spider Man: No Way Home was this idea that that in order to kind of fix his life. They wipe it. They wipe the universe's memory of Spider-Man because everyone knows him. It's ruining his life and mm. so. Um, and I remember thinking, like, okay, Marvel will probably have a good way to kind of start developing that when we get to the next Spider-Man outing. But it was like all of the investment that I've had in that character and his story just gone mm. because we've decided to forget it. And you know that like, that will develop. But I, I, I had a real issue with that and. And there was something similar going on here with just the this, corporate this thing. lightness. Go on. Yeah, sorry, interrupt. No, no. But... Um, the corporate thing is evident, and actually, I think it's symbolized by the credits. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I hated the credits in this film, and I hated a, a kind of contempt for the audience, really. You know, and a kind of uh, corporate uh, uh, egomania that it evokes, because. It's the first time in my life where, you know, you see the first credits, and who are they? This is the first credits you see in the film. I don't right? remember. Because there haven't been any opening credits, right? So the credits all come at the at the end. Mm-hmm. And they start off with the fucking producers. And you think, why the mm. fuck do I want to know who produced this film? Yeah. You know, I want to know, first of all, I want to know who stars in it, who's the director, who's the cinematographer, who did the music, who did the costumes, right? Like, kind of, you know, those are the things that make the film for you. Who gives a shit about the producers? You know, I mean, obviously they give a shit, right? And they make a lot of money out of it and whatever. And I'm sure they're necessary to the process. Mm. But to start the credits with the producers, what I thought was egomania of the worst kind. <laughs> Kevin and it Feige, me off. Kevin Feige is the big name producer. And he's the one who is like the daddy of Marvel. So he's actually, he's like a, he's like a big name. You know, people know him. But all the other, just some people, you know. I, I thought that, uh, you know, and th- this is maybe the unions falling apart, because I thought people were contractually obliged, yeah, to uh, uh, have a certain order of credits, mm. which always ended with the director, yeah, and often were preceding, you know, uh, producers were always egomaniacs. So it would be Sam Goldwyn presents, right? <laughs> and then at the end, they would be produced by Sam Goldwyn, yeah, yeah and, you know directed by yeah whoever um 
William Wyler. Usually. Um, <laughs> you know, but this, I mean, and it's not only that you have, you know, a producer at the beginning, is you have like 55 producers at the beginning, yeah. right? You know, and kind of, and what I wanted to know is like who played Mr. Yeah. Fantastic or, you know, uh, well, and also other things that annoyed me. So, for example, I wanted to know who the costume designer was because I didn't like them. You know? <laughs> uh, I thought, I mean, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch is such a, a, a handsome man and he's so tall and the costumes make him look podgy, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, all that of those... Baggy. Yeah, all yeah. of those layers of... You know, and there's a way that you could use the iconic uh, Doctor Strange outfit you know, uh, and make him look good in it, right? Mm. Uh, so the costumes were a problem for me. The hair and makeup was a problem, right? So on the one hand, there is nobody, you know, you can cast more perfectly than Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange. But that idiotic white streaks that looked like they'd been done by a five-year-old, right? And that were brill cream to the side of his head. <laughs> I mean, that was pathetic He's hair a cartoon dressing. character. No, there's a way of making that all much better. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and that stupid beard, where you have the goatee. It's a cartoon character. No, He's a mad. There's a there's better ways of doing of doing it. That idiotic beard with the you know where you just have this side bit leaping up, absurd. Yes, <laughs> he's a cartoon character. You could make a cartoon character look better. Uh, you know, yeah, if, he's, if so, he doesn't have so, silly, so, you know, hair and makeup, hair. atrocious. You know, costumes, very, the film very badly served, I think. So anyway, I wanted to know who, done, who to blame, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? And I, you know, I, th- I think the costumes came early and I, you know, I have not forgotten uh, who it was, you know, but I hated the way the credits were done, actually. But the thing about directors coming last, I mean, that's, I mean, there's so many films that, that cut and then, you know, cut to black, directed by... Such and such. Very often, the director's name comes first. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, kind of, you know, things have changed and they're doing them in in various ways. But to have the producers come first and to have so many of them, I mean, there was title after title after title and then co-producer and, you know, kind of, I thought that that was, like, just disgusting. Mm. I can't say I noticed it, but I'd be interested to look at the credits again and see how many producers showed up, you know. Uh, before the stars, right? I mean, you know, I think they were being a bit cute, and the rationale was that uh, you build up to the stars. Yeah, the, I think that is how they. Think it was it. in reverse order, so you get Marvel presents and then the title of the film at the very end, right? Because my instinct is that actually happens a fair bit that the producers come first, and then we get into names of stars on screen that like show them off. Well, um, I'm sure in this type of film they probably do. But it really struck me this time. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I do think it's kind of egomaniacal. It's not what, the, it's not what, a, what a, a film buff or a comic book buff wants to know, mm. you know. Uh, and the credits are there to give credit to and in order of importance. And really, if, <laughs> if the producers think that they are the most important, you know, aspect of the film, that is in itself a problem. Mm. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so... I, so I found the film kind of all over the place, really, and it's not without its pleasures, um, but I don't think it really coheres. Um, I mean, for instance, that scene where the, he fights his evil self with uh, music. 
Yeah. Oh, that was wonderful. So it's kind of it's a lovely flight of fancy, yeah. and it comes out of nowhere and serves no real purpose. Like because ultimately the way that the the weapon that um, Doctor Strange has is a kind of yellowy gold light that he can just create and he can mm. make shapes out of. So actually, it's a kind of a formless thing. It's just like shooting bolts at someone. It can be. So they do it with notes here because he bumps into a piano. He's like, why don't I do it with music? Mm. So, you know, it's it, it basically it's a way of giving form in this one particular battle to something that has no form normally. Well, I, I thought it was a wonderful idea, but also I must admit, I didn't get it. And I wonder if, I, if it's just I wasn't musical. I think it's completely... Um, Without purpose, it's just a bit of visual and or- fun. oral fun. Well, I, I did take it as a bit of visual yeah. fun, and it was. But there's this moment where a single note, yeah. you know, goes and wins, explodes everything. I think, why? Yeah, you know, because you've had all these notes flying. A big ball of music has been built up, <laughs> and so the last note off the harp, you know, did like... Pricks of the, but I, I mean, this is kind of what I'm talking about when I said earlier that it's one thing after another, and you can kind of do anything in this. You make up rules as you go along. This is what the magic can do. This is what the multiverse can do. Mm. And there's no real, there's no precedent, no basis for anything. In fact, that thing that I said about the the explanation for dream walking, going into someone else's body, that's actually the one thing that has real setup given to it. This is the rule for dream walking. Mm. It's it's impermanent, and you know, but this is how how it works. And then you go and see it happen. Everything else, all the kind of less important and more incidental stuff, just happens. Mm. And you go, I guess I'm going with it because it's just a world of magic now. Mm. You know? Yes, it anyway. It makes it hard to kind of buy into. And that's also what I kind of think about essentially going into the multiverse, which starts to feel like a bit of a get-out clause and an escape mm. from... You, know, you write yourself into a corner, you can just go, multiverse! Mm. And wind up somewhere else and, you know... I mean, I think I suppose my main criticism of it is that, you know, films to me are an experience, right? And they're an experience that involve meaning and feeling, yeah, that is that's conveyed through images and sounds. And this is why I'm always a proselytizer for cinema, yeah, mm-hmm. and for a big screen and so on, because I think those things make a difference in how you see and how you feel. And the thing about this film is that it didn't make me feel much. Mm. You know, mm. so, I mean, you're saying, oh, that's a dazzling image or, oh, wow, isn't that inventive or whatever. And on the other hand, you're not laughing much. You know, you're not excited. You're not emotionally involved. Yeah. And therefore, for me, the film is a failure. Yeah. Um, yeah. A very ambitious one, I think. In some know. ways. Um, but nonetheless, it doesn't quite work. Mm. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It does have a Bruce Campbell cameo, which is a regular of Sam Raimi films. People didn't know whether it would have one. It's not one of his best, although I do like seeing him. (laughs) <laughs> um, but I showed you the one from Spider-Man 3 which is just one of the great scenes in the history of cinema as far as I'm concerned <laughs> so it's never going to be able to match that and if you haven't seen that one go and watch it it's where he plays a waiter in a French restaurant and it's gorgeous it's so charming <laughs> it's just the most charming silly thing so there you go